another episode of The Places Where We Belong, written and read by Brett Wallach, a retired geography teacher in Norman, Oklahoma. In 2018, I began traveling. For no reason that I can remember, I began with an economy ticket for a nonstop flight from LAX to Sydney. Once, many years ago, I got a double upgrade on a flight from Delhi to Chicago. Yes, American used to fly that route. I had no such luck at LAX. And walking down the jet bridge, I imagined I was in Venice and walking down the Bridge of Sighs. It wasn't my first time in Australia. And on my first visit, I had skipped Sydney and gone straight to Alice Springs. Most Australians have heard of Alice but never seen it. It's in the dead center of the country, far from the coasts where nearly everyone lives, so my going there was like an Australian skipping Los Angeles and Yosemite and going straight to Wichita. Not many people would do that. Most people would think it was weird or, if they were being polite, unusual. But I think it would be a good way to sample the United States. After a few days in Alice, I drove north a thousand miles in the grim towns along the highway to Darwin, where a better introduction to Australia than any tour of Sydney's famously famous opera house. On this more recent visit, I checked into a high-rise hotel close to a stop on the train from the airport, and even closer to surprisingly good coffee. Sydney's business district, which was close to the hotel, has some fine old government buildings with facades celebrating the country's history. It's white history, of course. But I didn't need to see them again. My favorite place in Sydney was farther away. It's Gap Bluff, where waves surge and break against the cliffs on both sides of the narrow mouth of Sydney's harbor. When I'm there, I can't help thinking how far it is to South America. You might think that this would make me feel tiny, but you'd be wrong. It makes me feel anchored, or, if you can stand this word, geolocated. It's a good feeling, not to be confused with knowing my hotel room number or the floor I'm on or the street address of the hotel. After 15 hours in economy, however, I didn't want to sit on a bus for even the half hour it might take to get to Gap Bluff. I decided to walk instead to Darling Harbor, one of Sydney Harbor's many branches. I already knew Miller's Point, where Darling Harbor, the branch, meets Sydney Harbor, the trunk. Victorian townhouses on a high bluff once overlooked the busy docks there. The city's elite lived atop the bluff until an outbreak of bubonic plague in 1900 tested their ability to pack up in a hurry. The townhouses were taken over by a public agency and leased to working stiffs. A century later, containerization had rendered the docks obsolete, and shipping had moved from Miller's Point to Botany Bay, about 10 miles to the south. Yes, that's the same Botany Bay where Captain Cook landed in 1770. The government of New South Wales woke up and realized there was some money to be made from the old townhouses, which are almost in the shadow of the city's famous, I almost said iconic, Harbour Bridge, the renters didn't go quietly. I saw one window with a sign reading, Resist. Another had a poster of a skull with a top hat and a lit cigar. A third had a sign that said, Wanley, my home, 1976 to 2016. I hate to say it, but better than money. It's almost as irresistible as the ocean. On this more recent visit, I left my hotel and threaded a path through a thicket of high-rises down to a point on Darling Harbor about as far as you can get from Sydney Harbor. Call it the tip of the branch. 
I found myself remembering Alfred P. Sloan Jr., a long-dead boss of General Motors. Tight-collared Sloan had built the company's lineup, Chevrolet, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Buick, Cadillac, and had perhaps also coined the company's slogan of the day, a car for every purse and purpose. I was thinking of Sloan because I was looking across Darling Harbor to a Sofitel. It was flanked on one side by a Novotel and on the other by an Ibis. All three, luxury, mid-scale economy, belong to a core. France's answer to Marriott and Hilton. Rooms for every person purpose. The hotels flanked a conference center, an exhibition hall, and Australia's National Maritime Museum. On my side of the water, the Sydney Aquarium stood next to Oceania's only Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. Darling Harbour had evidently made the difficult jump from derelict industrial district to thriving entertainment venue, complete with a crowded yacht harbor. How many cities with derelict industrial districts dream of this? All of them, I suppose, at least in rich countries. It's a long list, and Sydney has managed the transition exceptionally well. Set back a block from my side of the water was the 32-story tower of the Commonwealth Bank, Australia's largest. Next to it were towers occupied by Dutch-owned Rabobank, Germany's insurance giant Allianz, and the British accountancy giant PwC. The four of them looked over the harbor like a gang of thieves casing out their next heist. Unlike most gangs, this one didn't lie low. But you don't have to hide if you've more or less written a country's laws and can more or less buy all the justice you need. On this weekend morning, lots of people were strolling along the waterside promenades. Nobody paid the money towers much, if any, attention. Nothing surprising there. But if I was about to cross a raging river somewhere in the Himalaya, and if the bridge in front of me was made of rough wooden planks lashed to cables abraded from vines, I'd stop, I'd tug at the cables, I'd stamp on a plank or two. You don't see the connection, but here it is. The Piermont Bridge spans Darling Harbor. About 1,200 feet long, the bridge opened in 1902. Ninety years later, it was downgraded to pedestrian-only use, like an elephant, demoted from teak logs to cotton candy. The bridge's central section weighs a 1,000 tons, and on command rotates on a central pier. I waited a bit, hoping to see it swing, but it never did. Did I check the bridge before stepping on it? I did not. Nobody else did either. If I had handed out leaflets warning of the bridge's imminent collapse, people would have looked at me for a moment and looked away. It's not like that Himalaya Bridge, but it's exactly the same as the towers housing the financial institutions. If my leaflets warned of their collapse, nobody would have paid any attention. Our trust in financial institutions is even more surprising than our trust in big bridges, because at least in theory, any of us can learn enough metallurgy and engineering to judge the condition of a bridge. Outsiders will never learn the secrets of the world's money companies. And so we stroll along, consoling ourselves if need be, with the fatalistic belief that if the system were to collapse, there's nothing we could do about it anyway. This blithe ignorance can be disturbing, but I'm not scolding anyone. I have bank accounts and insurance policies with companies I know very little about. I have doctors, too. I depend on them and trust them, more or less. Are they the best doctors available to me? I have no idea. Which is why I joke that there's a reason we're called patients. This failure 
to exercise our powers of judgment brings us to the mother of all problems, which I take to be the relationship between technology and freedom. It's been the mother of all problems for the last 5,000 years, ever since somebody in Mesopotamia began organizing people into the hierarchies needed to build things, like pyramids. It's the story of the thing Lewis Mumford half a century ago called the Mega Machine, his name for complex societies. It's a story usually told as a triumph, as in the phrase, the rise of civilization. But Mumford's point was that the benefits provided by these societies come at a terrific cost in regimentation, which is to say, in freedom. I imagine men and perhaps women wondering thousands of years ago what they had done to have to spend their lives hauling rocks for a tomb for a king they would never see. Come to think of it, I've never seen a president of the United States, though I must have seen thousands of pictures of them. Mumford's word never took root, but I like Mega Machine because it captures the terror lurking in what we cheerily call progress. In the 19th century, or a bit earlier, machines composed of human beings began to be supplemented by machines driven by steam and internal combustion engines. Electric motors came along. More recently, we've moved on to what we are pleased to call high-tech. Every generation for the last two or three hundred years has considered its technology the equivalent of high-tech. What's really new is our arrogance in choosing a phrase that sounds like high culture. We really do think that Michelangelo and Mozart should stand aside and make room for billionaires in t-shirts. Until about 1800, freedom had been what people wanted when they found themselves abused by landlords and moneylenders, bandits and thugs, bosses, tyrants, owners, husbands, all the pharaohs. Freedom is still that, but alongside what we might call social freedom, we now have, or more often don't have, environmental freedom, which I define as life in an environment suited to human beings. I assert that environmental freedom does not exist at Darling Harbor. I'll go farther and say that environmental freedom does not exist in any place built with modern technology. Of course, many people will say they have no problem working in a building where they rarely or never see the sky. They will say they are happy to own a condo whose windows do not open, or which provide a view only of other windows. Who am I to say that these people are living in unfit environments? After all, Dostoevsky returned from a Siberian prison camp and wrote that human beings can adapt to almost anything. And most of us living in a place for years and seeing everyone around us living the same way eventually think of that place as normal. I know what I'm talking about because right now I'm on the sixth floor of one such building, sealed windows, and I've more or less made peace with the place. Yet nearly everyone agrees with me at least some of the time. Yes, I have heard people say that they would eagerly take a one-way trip to Mars. But even people who understand the absurdity of doing that can usually be counted on to be excited by the purchase of their first electric car or some chip-enabled device for house or hand. At a bare minimum, almost everyone welcomes the advance of medical science. I do, too. I am also very grateful for running water and central heat. I do sometimes wonder how Shakespeare managed to write almost as well as we do. Imagine that. A moment later, however, we're watching a movie. The hero is a cop whose only phone is a rotary dial joke. He hears people talking about social media, 
but he doesn't know what it is. He lives in a broken-down trailer by the beach, flouts, rules, infuriates his superiors, and of course always catches the bad guys. He wants social freedom, no bosses, and environmental freedom, fresh air and the sea, and the movie invites us to admire him. Sometimes we even imitate him a bit. We call it our vacation, and it's when we try to make our escape. I say try, after reading that some national parks in 2021 were so crowded that visitors had to get timed admission tickets. Or we listen to country and western music, which by definition is almost oblivious of the modern world. That's not all. Millions of people vote for candidates who act as though the world is as simple as the lyrics in those songs. Many of these voters know that the world isn't big enough for 8 billion people to live on fish from the creek and peaches from the backyard. They don't even want to live that way, but still they vote for candidates who qualify, if I can borrow a phrase from the 19th century historian Jacob Burkhart, as terrible simplifiers. Voters probably have several reasons for doing this, but one of the reasons is that these voters feel vaguely but deeply cheated by the world around them so much so that they're ready to vote for a candidate who might bring the whole thing down. It isn't the finest hour for homo sapiens, but there is a Samson-esque logic to it. Watching the mighty pyramid crumble, the global edifice, the whole freedom-crushing shebang, would be exciting until it became terrifying. So there's nothing out of the ordinary. If one moment I criticize the mega-machine, and in the next enjoy coffee from a machine so complicated that if it breaks, the barista has to call a technician. You can't say I'm a hypocrite either, because hypocrisy rests on pretense. I don't pretend. I man up to the out-and-out contradiction of welcoming technology in one breath and condemning it the next. You could say I'm confused, but I'd prefer ambivalent. In any case, I've got lots of company. I'll even bet that astronauts returning to planet Earth look forward to a fishing trip. The obvious question at this point is, what's wrong with the world we've built? The short answer is that, given the chance, nearly any animal captured in the wild will leave its cage and not return. We, on the other hand, though conceding that we are animals in a biological sense, believe we are no longer like animals. I hesitate to say that we prefer living in cages, but we certainly pride ourselves on being smart enough to have replaced the natural world with one that's more comfortable and secure. For most of the people who live in what we call advanced economies, we have succeeded in making life less nasty, brutish, and short. It's a great accomplishment, I'm not being sarcastic, and vanishingly few people want to return to country music's homespun simplicity, even if it was logistically possible. I certainly don't. At the same time, denying our animal selves tends to reduce us to a combination of consumer and working stiff, the first implying that we exist to consume, and the second that we're already dead. That sounds harsh, but many years ago, a colleague told me that our bosses see us the way plumbers see pipe. He acted it out with his hands, measure, cut, solder. I thought he was exaggerating, but I would go him one better now and say that, treated like pipe, we become pipe. I know, that sounds ridiculous, but think of an impala running for its life, the cat in pursuit, 
adapts instantly to the impala's every maneuver. Both animals are amazingly clever, though no more so than an owl on the hunt or the mouse I've been trying to catch. Then think of a driver stuck in traffic. Another consumer. Another working stiff. Another piece of pipe. Of course, we do what we can to escape being pipe, which is why, stuck in traffic, we listen to the radio. If we can afford it, we live in an amazing house on the beach. And of course, we have a hideaway in the mountains, maybe a Swiss chalet or some place in the south of France. If we can't afford those things, we'll drive to the beach or the mountains on the weekend. We'll engage in what, without thinking about the word too much, we call recreation. Minimally. We might turn on the TV and watch athletes as gifted as impalas and cats and owls and mice. But there's a problem here because spectator sports teach us that only a few people are physically gifted. I disagree. As exhibit one, I declare, I can stand up. I don't know how I do it or how I learn to do it. Yes, I can approximately work out the major muscles and bones involved. But I know nothing about what I suppose are hundreds, if not thousands, of nerve impulses running up and down my spine before I'm up, usually on two feet, but sometimes just on one. In the same way, I can ride a bicycle. It's amazing, but nobody's impressed by my skill, partly because nearly everyone can ride a bike, but partly also because the skill is close to useless. I can ride a bicycle all day long, but I can't fix a broken television. The technician who can fix it is almost certainly unable to do anything with my broken air conditioner, and the technician who's brilliant with air conditioners won't touch my dishwasher, which insists on running for hours. I once knew a potato farmer in Maine who prided himself on being able to fix his own equipment. He was one of the happiest people I've ever known. I mean, genuinely, deeply happy. But he died of old age about 20 years ago. And farmers today use equipment stuffed with electronics that nobody can repair. We celebrate the people who have invented this stuff, but these machines make us not only dependent on other people, but physically and mentally detached or separated from the world where we can use our natural gifts. When that happens, we begin to ignore those gifts, and at that point, we begin to forget what we are. This is probably not the best recipe for happiness. Some smart people will tell me to hang on a minute. Sure, they will say, we are profoundly ignorant of the world we have created. Few people know that plate glass is made by floating it on molten metal. But the argument continues. Few people know how water defies gravity and rises from a tree's roots to its leaves. Of the few people who do, even fewer understand the storm that brought yesterday's rain to those roots. In other words. We're no more detached or separated from the engineered world than we are from the natural one. The flaw in this argument is that environmental freedom doesn't require knowledge; it only requires an environment in which we can survive on our animal talents. I say only, but it's not a modest requirement, not when those talents do not enable us to live in the modern world. Examples always help. I think of a dermatologist's office where I was studying a poster showing in this blended color some of the things in our skin. I was drawn to the Pacinian corpuscles, which I know tell us when we touch or bump into something. They're so obviously important that you'd think I'd know how they work, but you'd be wrong. 
How many Pisinian corpuscles do I have? I have no idea. Presumably, they can be traced back evolutionary branch by evolutionary branch to the beginnings of life on Earth. No wonder I'm comfortable with them. I trust them the way a cat trusts its whiskers. I can stretch a bit and behave naturally with the hammer I hold as my fist's extension. Because I have hands, I'm at ease with pliers and wrenches. Because I have teeth, I'm comfortable with saws and axes. I can stretch a bit more and use a screwdriver, though the helical curve of a screw is a subtle devil. Nearly everything invented in the last hundred years, however, exceeds intuitive understanding. Strictly, the trouble began a million years ago when some brave soul captured fire. Greek mythology reminds us that the gods were not amused, but I'm glad that this Paleolithic Prometheus acted as he or she did. Since then, we've had the entire span of our existence as a species to get used to this first and perhaps greatest non-intuitive technology. That's why I have a vague understanding of an incandescent light bulb. Not so with fluorescent tubes and LEDs, both of which remain an utter mystery to me, and I'm pretty sure to most people. And this is serious. Not one person in a thousand understands, let alone appreciates the elegance of Maxwell's equations, which underlie every electrical generator and motor on the planet. So the exhaust fan in my ceiling makes an unusual noise. Maybe it's a bad bearing, but I'm not really sure if the motor even has bearings. I bought the fan. It's mine. Every court in the land will uphold my claim, but the fan is a stranger. I don't want to begin to count all the strangers I live with from my phones, my laptop, my desktop, my printer, my modem, my range extenders, my televisions, plural, to the raft of appliances that have turned my kitchen into a machine room. Yes, these strangers make life wonderfully comfortable, but they demand that I accept their terms and conditions, and so I mutter at the seat belt warning buzzer or chime or whatever it is. I curse the tangles of wires sprouting from my electronic stuff. I kind of hate the LEDs on my bedstand. Sometimes the terms and conditions are more serious. On calm mornings, I step out on my front porch and through the darkness hear what sounds like a newspaper printing press, roaring maybe two doors down the street, but it's not a printing press. It's an interstate highway at the edge of a big American city. A visitor might guess that the road was 500 feet away, but it's actually well over a mile away. That sound carries unbelievably well, and sometimes I find it maddening. But my choices are dead simple. I can go back inside, or I can damned well get used to the noise. I feel sorry for whales and for dolphins who can't go back inside. I tell myself that these terms and conditions are a trivial price to pay for comforts unknown to Shakespeare. But I also worry. I have almost come to believe that I am the thing, the object, the mass that steps on my bathroom scale, no more and no less. I faintly remember that there are moments when I have felt or recognized that I was part of something bigger. I understand now that these were the moments when I sensed environmental freedom. These were the moments I was somewhere I belonged. 
So, back to Darling Harbor. I'm walking around, a little disappointed that nobody is applauding. If a toddler looks at me, I smile, and if the toddler stumbles, I purse my lips in sympathy. That's about the limit of my natural behavior this morning. Now we move on to learned behavior. My mother taught me not to urinate in public. Childhood friends taught me to be careful who I pick a fight with. More recently, and more than once, I've almost been killed learning that Australians drive on the left. I'm also running on the superabundant knowledge of all the things I don't know. We're back to the Paramount Bridge and the money companies in those high-rise towers. I neglected to say earlier that I'm a member of a Corps loyalty program. Others, too. These hotel companies usually prefer managing properties to owning them. I grow uneasy if I think about this because the owners are almost always unidentified. If I knew that a certain hotel owner was wicked, I'd try to sleep somewhere else. Instead, I delegate my judgment to the management company, which regularly thanks me for my loyalty. As to whether the management company itself is wicked, you might as well ask me how a cell phone works. All in all, here at Darling Harbor, or at almost any settled and prosperous spot on this planet, I'm walking around not in the world for which I am naturally gifted, but in a space mostly made by people trying to make money by providing something that somebody was willing to buy. I could say I'm alienated. In fact, I am alienated, but the academic pretentiousness of that word is hard to take. I like the phrase, deprived of my birthright, but it's well and truly taken. I'm left with detached and separated, words I've already used, but which are straightforward and accurate. Besides, they point me to what I really want, which, mirroring detachment and separation, is obviously attachment and unity.